You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Lee, Colorado for episode 454 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about two examples of rebuked emotions in the Old Testament as I continue conversing with my cousin Tim Mullet, pastor, nuthetic counselor, podcast host over at the Bible Bashed podcast. I am coming across uh, some other things to address or to bring up or to grapple with. Or as of two days ago, he is sending me some additional thoughts and follow-ups with regards to some questions I've asked in recent podcast episodes. I, for instance, gave a response to Sam Alberry and the Gospel Coalition saying that we live in an anxious age here several episodes ago. And in that episode, I also talked about my cousin Tim's position that, yes, sometimes we should rebuke emotions when the emotions are inappropriate or when someone is being controlled by their emotions, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked in that episode if there are any examples in the New Testament or Old Testament of God's people rebuking one another for emotions. I could not think of any. That wasn't to say that there were none. It was just to say, I think that they're not there. And if they are there, someone's going to have to point them out to me because I haven't been looking for them and I haven't noticed them. So lo and behold, (laughs) my cousin Tim, his last name being Mullet, is being in a very similar sense uh, influenced by the fact that we are our grandfather's grandsons obliged did not take that question as a rhetorical question and uh, pass over it but rather sent me a couple of passages to consider one of them being in Leviticus 10 as the death of Nadab And Abihu is discussed. The sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them. And they died before Yahweh. Now that's pretty intense stuff, right? Regardless of whether you are looking for some kind of an example of rebuking emotions It's easy to miss if it's going to be right here when this happens. They're offering unauthorized fire. That is to say, they're offering unauthorized worship. God had prescribed very detailed instructions for how he wanted to be worshipped by Israel, by the Levitical priests, by the household and family and lineage of Aaron And the sons of Aaron, they're not even very far into this, and the sons of Aaron are already taking liberties to innovate and to make stuff up. Let's just make stuff up. 
and why, right? That's a question that we ought to ask with regards to this passage, not how could God be so harsh, and isn't that a little bit of an overreaction, and what in the world is up with God that he would kill these two men, these priests, for doing something that seems so trivial? Or we could look at it the other direction. Instead of questioning God on this, we could question why Nadab and Abihu thought they needed to, thought they wanted to offer unauthorized fire to God in a way that God had not commanded. It was unauthorized. It was novel. It was innovative. That was not a good thing. Sometimes innovation is not actually towards the end of honoring God and honoring those around us. Sometimes innovation is purely for selfish ambition, vain conceit, selfish motives, trying to look really impressive. Well, that's what it was here. It says fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what Yahweh has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Moses called Mishael, Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that Yahweh has kindled, and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of Yahweh is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And Yahweh spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that Yahweh has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, Take the grain offering that is left of Yahweh's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from Yahweh's food offerings. For so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons do from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before Yahweh. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as Yahweh has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? 
since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before Yahweh. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before Yahweh, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would Yahweh have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. So what do we do with this, right? And for those of you who are not terribly familiar with the Old Testament, whether you have been Christians for a long time and you just never really read the Old Testament because the gospel's in the New Testament, after all. For those of you who are not Christians necessarily and the whole Christian thing is weird as it is and then you come to passages like this and you're really scratching your head about what's wrong with us and how can we believe this stuff. Let's just establish a few premises. <laughs> Let's get something straight. Worship of God is not just some ritual that we do to build community between us. It's not arbitrary. That's the point of Nadab and Abihu having been struck dead. Worship of God is not arbitrary. It's not just whatever we want and whatever we say and whatever goes that we can get by with, and then everybody's going to be very impressed and clap for us and cheer us on and say, aha, yes, well, now the party's really started when we show up. Worship of God, in order to actually be worship of God and not be a show all about us, really, truly, has to be according to God's instructions. We can't just do whatever and expect that God is supposed to approve it. If that's our attitude, that we do whatever and God is under some kind of an obligation to approve and to bless and to receive, to reward, then we may have our roles mixed up. We may think, in fact, that we are God and that God is more like a genie in a lamp. We rub the lamp and we make our three wishes and he is obligated by some kind of strange magic to give us what we want, to give us our wishes. That's why Nadab and Abihu are struck dead, first and foremost. Worship of God, recognition of who he is, is about more than just doing some of the things that God says to do, but doing them however we please. Recognizing that God is who he says he is and that he alone is worthy of worship requires every aspect of our being, not just our actions, not just that you go through the motions, kind of, sort of, for appearance's sake, and those who were not terribly familiar can't tell the difference. God knows what's in our hearts and in our minds. He knows what our motives are. He knows what our designs are before we act. And the same was very much true of Nadab and Abihu. Now, interestingly, all of that is as it should be. When God strikes dead the two sons of Aaron here, he then says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So this was not just an issue of two individuals 
sinning individually. This was an issue of two leaders and examples who were sinning in the sight of all, and who likewise, unless God had intervened to snuff them out, would have led the whole assembly of Israel into error and wickedness with them. But then we see this, Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, three of his family members, since Aaron was his brother, Eleazar and Ithamar were his nephews, Nadab and Abihu were his nephews, Nadab and Abihu having died, Aaron, Eleazar, Ithamar will be grieving their sons and brothers who have just been struck dead, grieving them after a fashion. And yet, we read, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. And to be clear, these were, and still are in some quarters, common signs and gestures of great distress, of very deep grief. Let your hair hang loose, tear your clothing. Moses says, don't lest you die. And the point that is made by my cousin Tim is that this is an example of an emotion being rebuked. I say, no, it's not. (laughs) I say, no, it's not. It is not an example of an emotion being rebuked. Moses doesn't tell Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar how to feel. He doesn't say, you can't be upset, you can't be sad, you can't be angry, you can't be confused right now, you can't be frustrated. He doesn't say any of that. He says, comb your hair and don't tear your clothes. Don't go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting. Stay right here. The Lord desires representation on his terms. And if it's not representation on his terms, then it's not actually representation of him. But if it claims to be, purports to be representation of him, and it's not actually on his terms, he takes that very, very seriously. The souls and the physical well-being of those who may be deceived and misled are at stake. So yes, even sometimes he strikes dead those who are claiming to represent him and yet innovating in ways that he did not command. Comb your hair, leave your clothes alone, don't tear them, is a command about what you will do, not about what you will feel. How you feel is immaterial. Set that off to the side. If you want to live, you had better compose yourself and control yourself and remember God. Do not forget God like your sons, Aaron, like your brothers, Eleazar, Ithamar, further on down. In Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before Yahweh, and yet such things as these have happened to me, referring to his sons having died, having been burned up, killed by God. Aaron says, If I had eaten the sin offering today, would Yahweh have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. It doesn't say when Moses heard that, he rebuked Aaron because yes, you did all the right things on the outside, 
but clearly you still don't have your emotions in control. You should have eaten the sin offering like normal, like usual. That's not what it says. That is not what it says. Another example, which Tim gave me, and this one is, I think, every bit as interesting, if not more interesting, also having to do with fathers and sons from 2 Samuel 18 to 19, verse 15. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it, and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, 
Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. And Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahamaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised your hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahamaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. 
Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So, again, as with the passage from Leviticus, what do we do with this? Well, for one, let me give a nod to our previous episode when I say this was intensely personal, this was spiritual, this was relational, this was a family drama, this was political turmoil as well. It was not either or. And the fact that David was thinking first, last, and in between about his relationship with his son is not good, given the fact that he had responsibilities to more than just his son. It was not good that he was forgetting his responsibility to the men who were going out and fighting and dying on his behalf. That was not good of him. Just because he was David did not mean that his response and everything was quite correct. Just because it was good for him to grieve his son Absalom does not mean that his reaction was fair to all of his servants, that he was forgetting that they needed his leadership. To some extent, Joab had a point, as I see it. Joab was thinking more clearly about the dispensing of justice here than David was. So Joab did what objectively seems as though it was what needed to be done. He has Absalom killed. Absalom had rebelled and risen up and tried to carry out a revolution against his father, David. Joab was the commander who had the opportunity to put that to a rest once and for all. No funny business, no potential for Absalom to escape if you bring him back and then he starts afresh his rebellion and his revolution. And yet, the flip side is, David had given clear instructions to Joab, deal gently with him, which is to say, David wanted Absalom brought back to David. So it's complicated, right? It's complicated because people are complicated. There's not a neat and tidy way to break this all down. And it's not enough to say, well, it's very reasonable that David felt the way that he did. It's very understandable. It doesn't mean that it's very reasonable. Yes, to Tim's point, Joab is rebuking David for being controlled by his emotions. And yet, I think 
just like with Leviticus 10. If we were to say Joab's rebuke was first and foremost directed at David's emotions, I think we would miss it. David could have and should have felt grief at the loss of his son, at the whole thing going the way that it had. And yet, what was at issue here first and foremost was that David was so dominated by that grief and by his feeling for his son Absalom that he didn't care about anything else. And dare I say it, that's probably in large part how Absalom got to be the way that he was. He was spoiled because all that David had in mind was his son being happy, being pleased, getting what he wanted. Then when Absalom wants to tear the kingdom in half, cause a lot of turmoil and upset, cause a civil war, well, then you give him what he wants there too. You don't see trouble coming. And it's to David's credit that he was not like, let's say, another king in the Bible, Herod, having his own son put to death or killed when he felt like his son was going to be a rival. He felt threatened by his son. Herod had his own son killed. And maybe his son was plotting and conspiring against his father. Or maybe he wasn't. And maybe Herod was just an evil, evil man. But David, I think, is to be commended for not having wanted his son, even in rebellion, to be killed. And for having reacted with so much grief. It's hard not to be compassionate towards David. And yet, the flip side is, Was Joab actually rebuking David for his grief or for what he was doing and what he was saying? What you are saying is not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God, David. What you are doing is not good. What you need to be doing is this objectively. What you are doing is not good. What you are saying is not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you have a responsibility. This is echoes of Leviticus 10. If you want to live, comb your hair and don't tear your clothes. Get a hold of yourself. You need to remember your responsibility before God to this people. Now, it's interesting, and this is a question that I posed to Tim. It's interesting that this is in the text. And to Tim's point, this may give some credibility to something like what he's describing in the way of rebuking people for inappropriate emotions. And yet, I don't think it does. It might give some credibility, but I don't think it does prove that there's merit to rebuking people for their emotions. I don't see Joab rebuking David for grieving. I don't see Moses rebuking Aaron for grieving. Now, you could say, Grief is an outward expression, not just an internal feeling. And I would say there's a big difference between rebuking people for how they're feeling and telling people that what they're doing is not good and what they're saying is not true. What we ought to be telling people is not, don't feel that way. What we ought to be telling people is, this is what is true. This is what is good. It is written. It is written. It is written. I'm sorry for your pain, and I'm sorry for your loss, and I'm sorry for the way you're feeling right now, it does not change the fact that it is written. 
and this is what is true, and this is what is good, and this is what we need to be about. We have a responsibility before God to say what is true, to do what is right, and your pain and your grief and your sadness and your worry and your anxiety do not give you some kind of a blank check to forget God. They don't. You can feel those feelings. And yet, on the other hand, if I can comfort you, because some of that feeling is not according to the truth, I want to comfort you and advise you and counsel you. But I read this and I see in the story of David and Joab, for one thing, yes, David is brought back. He becomes king again. But also, Joab is no longer a commander. He is replaced with Amasa. David may have listened to Joab's counsel, but then he removed Joab. In some measure, I think, because there's a bitterness that David feels towards Joab for Joab having just spoken to him the way that he did in the depths of his grief. He will never be able to forget what happened to his son Absalom so long as Joab is there reminding him, you remind me of my son and grieving for my son and you giving me a rhetorical slap across the face and telling me to snap out of it. Also too, if word reached David that it was actually Joab who killed Absalom, well, there also, he couldn't have Joab serving as a commander anymore. That David did not have Joab destroyed right then and there for having killed his son, having disobeyed the order of the king, deal gently with my son Absalom, I think is commendable when you survey other kings over the thousands of years. But I don't see in this David being rebuked for his emotions, for his feelings. I see him being strongly reprimanded for having been dominated by his emotions, controlled by his emotions. Yes, you're feeling a certain way, and you have forgotten your duty to this people. You know, a good point that Tim brought up in our discussions, our last phone conversation, I'll share with you, and I'll hopefully not overshare, and Tim, forgive me if I am speaking out of turn, but I think what you had to say about how the Puritans preferred calling these feelings inside of us our affections. I think that was well said. Emotion is something of a novel idea and concept and word. What we find more historically among Christians is talk of our affections, particular affections, particular feelings. Nowadays, we call them emotional responses, but it used to be we would just describe that sentiment, that feeling, that mode of the heart being in relation to some person, place, or thing. Our affections are very important, no doubt. How we feel, what we express when we speak, what we do when we act, what we don't say, what we don't do, these all, yes, are indicative of where our affections are. And yes, they are fair game to discuss, to consider, to weigh, to measure. And yet, only God knows really truly what is in the other person's heart 
and mind. And I think sometimes only God knows what's in our own hearts and minds. So I say again, I do not see God's people rebuking one another for the feeling, for the thought, because we cannot see the feeling or the thought. We can see an expression. We can see what they do. We can hear what they say. We can test and measure what they say and what they do against God's word. And we can say, it is written, it is written, it is written, regardless how you feel. And if you feel a certain way, well, you still need to tell the truth. If you feel a certain way, you still need to do what's right. But I think that's all we can do. And I think we spend entirely too much time fixated on the feelings themselves and that to all our detriment. Leave that to God. That's his domain as I see it. But more could be said. Doubtless, this will not be the last you hear of these discussions back and forth about emotions. There's much more, much more to say. Not that I want to say it, but we have to say it because it's in the culture. It is in the air that we breathe, in the water that we drink, in everything that we hear all around us all the time in this day and age. For now, I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.